it really was pretty much the worst case scenario that any you know army could find themselves in it's one of these great what ifs you know if, if if they had surrendered it would have been possibly you know the biggest disaster that any british army had ever faced hi guys and welcome back to the redcoat history podcast i've got a real belter for you today as amapol singh joins me again to discuss the first anglo sikh war of 1845 to 1846 don't worry, I've not finished my deep dive into the Peninsula War yet, but I'm just taking a month off to post this series of interviews. If you're a Peninsula War buff, never fear, as I'll be back next month covering the campaigns of 1813. For now, though, let's transport our minds to northern India and the Sutlej River in the Punjab, scene of some of the most brutal battles that the British ever fought on the subcontinent. I started by asking Amapol to talk us through the opening moves of the war in December 1845. The British were actually unready at that stage. Um, they they weren't expecting the Sikh army to cross so so quickly. So you know the British force was actually quite sort of heavily divided at that stage. So you had you know the main force uh, under the commander in chief, Sir Hugh Goff, uh, in Delhi, Meerut sort of side. You had, uh, you know, about five or six thousand men uh, on the border already at Ferozpur. Uh, then you had a couple of thousand in Ludhiana, which is another sort of border town, if you like. Um, and then you had in the foothills uh, of the Himalayas another couple of thousand uh, men as well. So you had a little, you know, little odds and ends everywhere. Now the when the Sikh army crossed, the what they should have done, you know, if 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 the you know the commanders had that. Um, you know, um, uh, desire, um, they should have attacked these places and actually sort of mopped up, you know, the, the sort of smaller forces, if you like. But they didn't do that. They just marched across the river and uh, made camp at uh, Frosbur, um facing the British force, but not attacking it. And um, and then the, the other half of the Sikh army just stayed at a place called Ferozshah as well. So they literally were just waiting for the British to sort of uh, assemble their forces, if you like, um, and then take it from there, really. So that was a big mistake. Well, and, and, and was that a mistake or was that down to treachery, do you believe? Well, it was treachery. I, I, I don't think they had any particular desire to, um, you know, take the initiative. Um, there'd already been communication going on between uh, you know, Lal Singh and Tej Singh and the British anyway, where they were passing information as to, you know, what they were going to do. And they were even asking for instructions as well, you know, um, regarding, you know, what do you want us to do effectively? And uh, the answer was, you know, just keep the, the Sikh army there until, you know, um, Sir Hugh Goff comes up and, uh, you know, and, and effectively um, takes them on. So, yeah, so the, the Sikh army was effectively sitting at Feroz Shah, and uh, that allowed the, the British force to sort of march up from Delhi and uh, come up to a place called Mudki, which was, you know, only about three or four miles from the Sikh camp. And what happened there? Uh, well, what happened was that the, when the British reached Mudki, Lal Singh decided to send a portion of the Sikh army and, um, you know, effectively just to, to split it even further. <laughs> and uh, so he sent uh, about nine to 10,000 men uh, against the British force, um, leaving, you know, around about 10,000 men 
at Frozeshaw as well. And um, I think the idea was to really sort of, you know, so almost feed it to the British force, if you like, you know, get them to, to destroy it. Yeah, but basically destroy the, the force piecemeal. Um, but when the battle happened, um, it, it was a bit of a stalemate, actually. Uh, if you ever go to Mudki, what you'll find is there's, uh, or oh, there used to be a jungle there. Um, there's a huge number of uh, these very strange sort of sandy hillocks everywhere. Uh, just to explain the, the battlefield to everyone. So you've got jungle, you've got these sandy hillocks, you know, totally obscuring the view. You know, it's nighttime, you know, nobody can see anything, huge amount of dust in the air, and uh, you literally could not see, you know, five feet ahead of you. So, um, you know, so you had this first battle between the Sikhs and the British, fought in, you know, absolutely confused circumstances, and it sort of ended in a draw, effectively. So then what happened after Mudki then? So Yugoth decided to rest his force, and um, so they stayed there in Mudki for a couple of days. Uh, Mudki was fought on the 18th of December, and uh, on the 21st of December, he decided to then advance his force to Feroz Shah. So this was going to be the sort of, you know, the climax, if you like, because he's meeting the main Sikh force now uh, at Feroz Shah. And, um, you know, he was quite confident. Uh, you know, despite Mudki, he thought that, um, you know, it's just a matter of just turning up, advancing. You know, he was the type that just liked to sort of advance with the bayonet and, um, you know, full frontal attack. You know, no no great sort of tactics or, or um, any sort of um, strategy involved, you know, just, um, you know, just attack the, the Sikh army. And he hoped it would just, you know, sort of uh, disintegrate. Um, and, um, you know, the battle will be over in a, an hour or so. And, uh, you know, the British force had just sort of make it way, its way back to, to Mudgi that same night. Um, so that was the that was a plan, but it didn't quite work out that way uh, uh, for the British. So so what, what happened then? So Goff pushed forward towards uh, Ferris Shah. And then what happened next? He just to give people a, a sort of uh, everyone a context of, of what was going on. The British force was about 20,000 strong. And uh, same as the, the Sikh army, about 20,000 strong. So you had, you know, a roughly sort of equal contest, if you like. Um, the difference was that the, the Sikh army had much better artillery. They'd brought along all their heavy guns, uh, whereas the British force had sort of lighter guns, um, a lot of them horse artillery. So, you know, th there was a big sort of... Uh, a uh, difference in the, um, you know, the firepower, if you like, between the two forces. But Goff was confident, you know, he thought he could just attack, you know, the Sikh army would just just, just uh, um, sort of run away, if you like, you know. Um, so he decided on a full frontal attack. You had the, um, you know, the artillery uh, opening up on both sides, you know, uh, to start off the, the contest. Within the hour, um, he found that, you know, all the British artillery had effectively been destroyed by um, the Sikh, um, Sikh guns, uh, which is, you know, must have come, a, come as a bit of a surprise, you know, because normally, you know, the British force was uh, always, uh, you know, uh, or certainly in the last 50 years had been quite superior to, to um, you know, other Indian armies. It was a bit of a, bit of a shock there, I think. Um, and I understand so, there was a bit of a disagreement as well. I hear from your book, Goff was just wanted to keep going. And I think his second in command, who was also his civilian boss, is it Hardinge or Harding? 
um, said, oh, this isn't a good idea. Are you sure you want to do that? Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. I mean, Goff was uh, somebody who liked to, you know, just attack, you know, um, with whatever he's got, you know. Um, so Henry Harding, who was a, who was a, um, a soldier himself, um, basically put the leash on him. Um, you know, just before the battle, he told Goff that, you know, you've got to wait for reinforcements. And um, he didn't allow him to attack. You know, if, if Goff had attacked at that point with just the force he had, it would have been a, a complete disaster. Uh, but, you know, from the British aspect, you know, thanks to, you know, the governor general, he was stopped from attacking at that point. Um, he, um, he had to wait for about five to 6,000 troops from uh, Ferozbur, which is, you know, where the, uh, the, you know, the British outlying station was. Uh, frontier station was. Um, and with this force, you know, he was given the, the go-ahead to attack. So it would almost definitely have been a, a disaster for the British, um, you know, uh, if, if, if he had actually gone at that point. So I guess just to explain, can you, can you maybe uh, um, explain for people this bizarre dynamic that we had in the British High Command between Goff and Harding uh, in terms of who was actually the boss. Can you just kind of explain how that bizarre situation came about and, and who they both were in relation to one another? Yeah, well, Sir Henry Harding, he, he was quite an experienced uh, uh, man himself. You know, he'd actually fought in the uh, Napoleonic Wars, but he was a civilian, you know, he was the, uh, the governor general. But he actually uh, decided to become uh, Goff's second in command, you know, um, so you know, just to just you know, because he wanted a role in the you know in in the affair. But you know, he could see that you know what had happened at Mudki uh, was going to happen in in Frostchar as well. Um, so you know, he very wisely decided to sort of step away from his second in command role and become the governor general uh, at that point, and um, sort of forbade him to <laughs> attack at that point, and uh, until the reinforcements came. And uh, then he sort of slipped back into his, um, you know, second in command role as well. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was quite a strange moment in 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 uh, um, in, in history, really, where uh, you know you've got the governor general sort of, you know, uh, sort of competing with the uh, the commander in chief there. It's never going to end well, really. Knowing human nature, your boss can't also be your second in command. That's that's never going to end well. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I suppose it ended well for the British um, at, at Feroz Shah, but it, yeah, it could have been a, it could have been a very different affair, I think. Um, you know, if uh, if he had attacked without the reinforcements. So once these reinforcements arrive and he launches his attack, what happens? Can you give us a sense of, of maybe just tell us the dates and then what happened and and sort of size of the forces and that sort of thing. Okay. Well, uh, the the British force. Once they'd got these reinforcements, advanced to Ferozshah, it was about four o'clock and you're talking 21st December, which was actually the shortest day of the year. Uh, so by four o'clock, it's, it's, it's pitch dark or, you know, becoming very dark anyway. I'll tell you what, why don't I explain how the Sikh army was formed? OK, yeah, uh, that's good. Or, or was situated in the, in, at Ferozshah. What? What the, the Sikh army had done was uh, formed a, almost a, a sort of rectangular defensive sort of compound, if you like. Frozshaw was a village and the Sikh army had formed a, 
uh, a sort of uh, a defensive line all around the village, if you like, in a, in a, in a rectangle. With the short end of the rectangle uh, pointing south from which the, you know, the side from which the, uh, the British were approaching from. So what Gough decided to do was attack on the, the west, western face, the, the eastern face and from the south as well. So effectively, you know, he's attacking um, sort of almost sort of curving around, you know, the, the, the Sikh, um, Sikh position, if you like. Now, the, the attack on the western side was a complete failure. The British left uh, attacked the, the Sikh uh, western side of the uh, Sikh entrenchments. Um, and they were totally, you know, almost obliterated. A lot of the, the Sikh guns on that side, uh, the Sikh strength uh, was on that side. Um, they literally attacked a couple of times and each time they were sort of pushed back. That force was literally a spent force after that and Littler retreated to a village about three miles away. Um, and I've never quite figured that out. Why did he do that? Maybe it was just a confusion of the battle or, or whatever. But he effectively, you know, sort of departed the battle, if you like. So that division on that side was out of the battle for that day. So that left the, the British middle and right attacking. And these both these uh, divisions had much better luck. So they actually got into uh, the Sikh camp. And um, that's it from about five, five o'clock onwards, right up to, you know, nine, 10 o'clock. Um, you had intense fighting inside the Sikh camp. In fact, Goff had his um, reserves, um, which he also threw in as well. Uh, which was a dangerous move because, you know, if you've got no reserves, you're throwing everything in. Um, Especially if your left you know. flank's wide open. Well, that's right, yeah. I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a dangerous move. And if the Sikh cavalry, which, which never got engaged in the battle, had decided to sort of wheel round, you know, it would have been a total disaster. Um, but he, he decided to take the risk anyway. So he, he effectively threw everything in. They managed to, the British managed to capture about half the camp, but that was it. You know, that was a sort of high watermark, if you like, of, of, of the British um, attack. What they found was that, you know, all the soldiers are running out of ammunition. You know, basically, Goff didn't bring any of his um, supplies and what have you with him from Mudgi. You know, he thought that what he had with him would, would be sufficient so they're literally fighting with the bayonet only, you know, gradually being pushed back as well. Um, you know, the, the Sikh army had effectively rallied. And, um, you know, the decision was taken that this is untenable. We can't stay here. Very dangerous position. You know, the Sikh army could literally, you know, encircle the British within the camp now. Uh, so, the, you know, the decision was taken to, 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 to sort of come out of the, the camp and retreat about a mile and form a, a sort of defensive compound, if you like. So that, that's the way it ended, probably about 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock at night. So at that point, you could say the battle was kind of uh, a, a sort of uh, a, a score draw, like no, no one was really victorious at that point. That's right, yes. I mean, it was a very difficult situation, though, for the British. You know, as I mentioned, they, they'd run out of ammunition. The, the British uh, artillery has been, you know, smashed to pieces. There's no food. Uh, there's no water as well. You know, all these guys, you know, all the all the uh, the British force had left very early on that day, uh, you know, 
starting at uh, you know five six o'clock in the morning they'd had nothing to eat the whole day nothing to drink as well it's also very cold as well you know this is uh you know punjabi nights tend to get you know seriously cold um and these guys don't have any you know baggage with them there's no covering or anything it really was pretty much the worst case scenario that any you know army can find themselves in so you know uh, there's nothing there, effectively. And the British, they, they considered retreating and even surrendering at, at this point. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I think the I think the thought came across, you know, Harding's mind um, and probably Goff's mind as well. The option was either to to surrender or to retreat. Now, retreating might have sounded, you know, the better option. But, you know, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the jungle, it would have been very difficult for you know these men to actually make their way back, tired, exhausted. Uh, in fact, some of the the officers were actually asked, you know, is it possible for us to retreat? And uh, you know, after you know a whole day's marching, a whole day's fighting, you know, the, the officers simply said, you know, the, you know, our men are too tired. You know, we're never going to make it the 10, 12 miles back to Mudiki or Ferozshah. You know, it's just not possible. So we have to stay here. What Goff decided to do was just chance it, you know, the next day. Um, he was a you know, chancer, he wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, there's, a, there's quite a famous line. I don't know if I've got it with me, actually. Somebody asked him, shall we um, basically surrender or, you know, shall we retreat? And um, no, he said, I'd, you know, I'd rather die on the spot. <laughs> you know, he basically wanted to... Uh, just chance it uh, the next day, effectively. Yeah. Um, well, I guess his so, career would have been completely ruined if he'd have surrendered. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, it, you know, it's one of these great what ifs, you know, if, if, if they had surrendered, you know, it would have been uh, uh, possibly, you know, the biggest disaster that, you know, any British army had ever faced, you know, because you had the you had the British commander in chief there, uh, you know, you had the governor general there as well. Uh, mm. You know, both these guys would have been, you know, captured or taken prisoner. You know, you had, um, um, you know, a whole host of, you know, British generals there. The, the majority of the the European regiments in North India were were in the battle. So you know, it was a very tricky situation. It wasn't just. Uh, the the army surrendering you know uh, they also had to look at you know the british position in in the rest of india a complete disaster at ferozshah would have you know what were the implications of that you yeah. know all across india very big decision uh, yeah especially given the defeat at kabul only a few years before i mean i guess it would have just marked potentially the end of the british empire in india at that point if if they had have surrendered yeah i think so i i, I think a lot of the um the Indian states, you know, the Indian Rajas uh, around the country would have probably taken the opportunity to, you know, reassert their independence. You know, the British simply wouldn't have had, you know, the troops to, to sort of deal with the situation um, and, um, you know, the loss of prestige, if you like, you know, because you had the Anglo-Afghan war where, you know, that had been a, a disaster, uh, effectively, uh, you know, the retreat from Kabul. And that was still fresh in people's minds. You know, that was just, uh, you know, three years earlier, um, three and a half years earlier. Yeah, very big decision. <laughs> but then and, uh, uh, I, I believe uh, 
Goff, Goff was very, very lucky and yet again sort of seek infighting and treachery saved the day. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, well, um, they were expecting the worst, uh, Goff and Harding. Uh, what actually happened was that the Sikh army left Frosthar during the night, which was a big surprise to them when they woke up. Um, you know, they were expecting the, you know, a sort of counterattack by the Sikh army to sort of uh, finish them off. And um, complete silence. The, the British force, once they got up, actually sort of combed their way through the whole of the, the Sikh camp and, um, you know, through minimal resistance, really. What had happened was that um, Lal Singh, uh, who was the uh, guy in charge of the, of the Sikh army there, basically decided, you know, this isn't on. Let's 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 retreat. He probably just didn't want to win at that stage. You know, he didn't want to compromise his position with the British. And because um, so he was one of the was ones made... sort of dealing uh, insider dealing with the British. Is that right? He was he was one of those, you know, hoping for a good position uh, after the war. That's right. Yeah, he was the prime minister. Um, he, he basically he had no military experience. Um, so he wasn't really a military man, but nevertheless he was he was commanding um, at that you know at that battle. You know he made the decision to to, to leave, and um, you know all the guns, all the Sikh guns were left there, all the supplies, baggage, everything. You know um, the order was given just to you know march across the border back into you know Lahore territory again. You know, it was one of the great sort of let offs, really, in, in sort of military history, really. Uh, certainly surprised Goff um, and Harding when they got up. Um, <laughs> a nice, pleasant surprise. A, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, there was a second let off as well the, the next day. You know, once they combed their way through, you know, the Sikh camp and uh, they thought the battle was over, most of the force disintegrated you know there were British soldiers you know looking for water looking for food you know they hadn't eaten the whole of the previous day the whole of the night you know absolutely famished so the whole force basically was scanning through you know the the Sikh camp looking for food and you know settling down and uh, as soon as that happened uh, another Sikh army suddenly appeared um, from the west and um, you know that was the army of Dej Singh who'd been stationed at Ferozpur he hadn't attacked you know Ferozpur he was just sitting there. Um, his men had sort of harangued him to, you know, help the Sikh army at Frozhar. Mm. He was sort of browbeaten into um, sort of advancing. So about uh, two hours after um, the, the British thought the, you know, the battle had ended and, you know, they've got the Sikh entrenchments, suddenly there's, a, there's another army, you know, standing in front of them and, um, you know, ready for the attack. Um, but that was a let off as well. You know, after a, a short sort of artillery um, exchange, Tej Singh actually led that army away as well. Um, so, you know, that was a that was a second let off, if you like. Um, and what, what was his reasoning for leading his army away? Well, you see, this is one of the, the really weird things. You know, he um, his explanation was that uh, a British uh, move to his right uh, was some sort of flanking move, you know, he made this sort of excuse, you know, we better help Lal Singh's uh, army, who'd already, you know, departed. So he made all sorts of excuses, and this didn't really wash with the, uh, um, the Sikh um, soldiers. And uh, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a famous story of, written by Carmichael Smythe, uh, one of the uh, British historians, about a, a Sikh uh, cavalryman, you know, telling him you're a traitor, you know, um, and um, just riding back to his line, you know, after that. 
the, the Sikh soldiers knew they were being, uh, you know, sort of uh, double-crossed at this point. But, you know, there was this residual sort of uh, discipline, if you like. They couldn't just, you know, get rid of him. Um, they couldn't just pick some soldier to lead them at that stage. And, you know, there wasn't that sort of uh, organisation there. So so that army was actually led off back across the border as well. Um, so, yeah, two let-offs in, uh, in one day um, for the British force. I mean, maybe we're going off on a tangent here, but as as a Sikh yourself, someone from the Punjab, when you read that history and you see that even with half an army, even badly led by people who were essentially traitors, you still nearly beat, you know, the the greatest power of the day worldwide. Um, How mad does that make you (laughs) to kind of think of what could have been or maybe what should have been? Yeah, well, it's it's a great... It's a great talking point in Punjab, you know. Um, you know, you, have, you go to uh, any of the Punjabi villages anywhere, and you talk about Lal Singh and Tej Singh, you know, and people will spit on the ground, you know. <laughs> the the level of treachery uh, was, you know, absolutely, you know, horrendous. I don't think they'll ever be forgotten in, you know, in Sikh history, in, in you know, in the Sikh community. Um, it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly makes you know it's very um, um, frustrating. You know, if you if you look at it, if you look at the what ifs, you know, if 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 they'd actually been loyal to their troops, what could have happened? You know, um, you know, my personal feeling is that, you know it would have been um, you know one of the most um, uh, famous battles in history, really. You know, simply because it would have you know it was sort of almost overturning the British Empire in one battle. At the Battle of Ferozshah, the British suffered around 2,300 casualties. The Sikhs, around 3,000 casualties. But the war was still far from over. The British force sort of recuperated for about six, seven weeks. So um, Ferozshah was on the 21st December, and you had the Battle of Sabraun, which was the last battle on the 10th of February. So that sort of six, seven-week period was a, a time when, you know, Goff sort of managed to get, you know, more reinforcements, more supplies and uh, more guns. And um, so basically readied himself for, you know, the final conflict in in, in the battle. On the Sikh side, though, um, things were getting worse because they weren't getting any reinforcements. You know, they weren't getting food supplies. You know, there was a lot going on behind the scenes to sort of weaken the, the army still further. In fact, during the Battle of Samrao, you know, a lot of the uh, Sikh artillery shells, for instance, were found to be defective. You know, there wasn't, uh, you know, instead of gunpowder, uh, there was sacks of, you know, sand or other stuff uh, being sent and stuff like that. And this, this was all uh, part of this uh, big sort of scheme of treachery from from various sort of political types. That's right. Yes, yes. Um Basically, you know, they were probably surprised that the, the Sikh army still existed at this point. They'd actually done better than they should have done in uh, Ferozshah, considering they weren't they weren't being managed um, at all. But yeah, I mean, this was a time when the the army still needed to be destroyed. So um, yes, yeah, so there was no there's no help coming along. But morale was still pretty high. You know, if you read um, you know sort of first-hand accounts of, of the Sikh army at Sabraun, they, they they were still confident that they could do it. You know, I mean they'd. Uh, uh, they managed to almost beat the, the, the British at Ferozshah. So, you know, they were sure they could do it again. What they didn't know was that the, the, um, the Sikh commanders had decided to split the Sikh army again. 
one portion of the Sikh army uh, was actually, you know, about 10,000 men, uh, 10 to 15,000 men were actually pushed back across the, you know, the border river, the, the Sutluj River. They settled on this sort of entrenched area just next to the river with the river at their back. You know, anyone who knows anything about sort of military history will tell you that the last thing you want to do is, you know, be fighting with a, a, a river a river behind you and, uh, you know, a powerful enemy in front of you. Uh, but that's how they planned it. So half the, the Sikh army was, you know, crossed over uh, in this entrenchment and the other half of the army would, would just sit there on the uh, uh, the opposite bank, you know, the Sikh side of the, the river. And effectively, you know, in the coming battle, they would take no sort of active part in it. So only half the army would fight um, at Sabrao. So this is this is a strange question, perhaps. But what was this? Uh, what was the reasoning behind this? Uh, the Sikh army's penchant for digging in. It seems like they liked digging into these sort of uh, fortified positions. Was that just again part of this um, plan to deliberately sort of keep the army in one place so it could be destroyed, or was this a traditional Sikh Sikh tactic? Well, the Sikh army was good at fighting on the defensive, but I think it was mainly a decision by, you know, the commanders and the officers to to simply stay on the defensive all the time. So all the battles that you see in uh, in the first Anglo-Sikh war, the Sikh army is always fighting on the defensive, you know, even when they have the chance to, to, to actually take the initiative. That was the case. Um, and even in the, the second war, although the situation in the second war was different because you know, the Sikh army was considerably weaker. So, you know, you can make a case for fighting on the defensive there. Uh, but certainly in the, the first war, um, the, the Sikh army was strong enough to have taken the initiative. And in fact, they could have attacked uh, the British force at uh, Ferozshah again, you know, as Goff was waiting for these considerable reinforcements. You know, he got 16,000 men uh, coming in, you know, during uh, January. Uh, I, think it, I think it was uh, under Sir John Gray, uh, from Meerut, and um, you had Sir Charles Napier coming in, you know, up from from Sin province as well, with another fifteen thousand men. So he had a huge number of men, you know, who 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 were sort of you know sort of uh, reinforcing him. So ideally, the Sikh army should have attacked before these these forces got together. But no, they you know that just wasn't the the case with uh, you know that's just not what the generals wanted. Yeah. So they're now dug in, half the army on one side of the river, half on the other. The British army is getting stronger opposite them under Goff. How does the battle finally take shape and what happens? Okay, well, um, the uh, another bit of treachery here. <laughs> uh, Lal Singh and Tej Singh actually communicated to the British that the, the Sikh right wing... Uh, right next to the river was almost completely undefended. And this was communicated to the British. So there was no guns there, hardly any men there. Most of the, the Sikh force was actually uh, sort of uh, kept in the front and, 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 and to the south. So the, the right flank was exceptionally weak. And, uh, you know, the British checked checked with their, their own spies as well, and, and that was confirmed. So the idea was to have... An overwhelming force on the on the British left to attack that 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 flank, and and then literally just attack you know the main Sikh line from the back, and that would effectively sort of envelop them and just just roll up the whole line. 
That's right. Yes. Once you once you've got through into the back of the the rear of the entrenchment, you know the uh, the Sikh line was would either be attacked from the back or they'd have to you know try and re retire somewhere. So that was a plan, and that's the way it worked on the day, 10th of February, and um, the the battle lasted a couple of hours. You know, it wasn't a very long battle. As soon as the the British had got in behind the Sikh line, um, the Sikh soldiers had to uh, sort of retire. Um, the there was a bridge to to cross back uh, to you know the Sikh side of the the, the, the river the Sikh Sikh territory. When you're in the middle of a battle, you're not going to get that many men sort of crossing back on the on, on on the bridge. And there's reports that that was sort of sabotaged by Lal Singh and Tej Singh anyway. So not many men would have made it over anyway. So basically, most of the Sikh force was actually pushed into the river. At that stage, and um, you had, you know, estimates were that, you know, pretty much all this force, around 10,000 men, were, you know, either shot in the river or, or drowned. Um, so, you know, a big massacre, you know, ending um, the final battle of of, of the war, really. Um, so, yeah. And and so casualty figures were that high, were they? I mean, what are our, what are the estimates of Sikh casualty figures? You know, how how many people actually survived that slaughter? Well, there, were, there was a few hundred that managed to cross over, but you know, you're talking about uh, you know the British force literally lining you know the side of the bank of the river and just literally firing in with guns and and, and their muskets. Um, so it's very difficult to escape from that. The the river was also quite swollen at that time. You know, there'd been sort of heavy rains. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a swollen river, so uh, it was as bad as it could be, really. Fast flowing, a lot of water, not much chance to, you know, really swim across to the other bank. So very few men made it. Uh, so yeah, I, I can believe that, you know, British estimate of about ten thousand men, you know, being lit, either drowning or, or, you know, being shot. And Sikh soldiers never, never, um, um, you know, surrendered. Um, you know, even when they were offered the chance to surrender. So, you know, there were no there were no prisoners um, taken at that stage. Because um, one of in the fact, golf, I, yeah, sorry, so, sorry, on. I was going to say one one of the things I found really interesting in your book were these stories. Uh, for example, there was a sepoy who who left uh, uh, his own his own recollections of the battle. I think it was he was also at Sabrao. And he said he, he realized something was wrong when he did see Sikhs trying to surrender. And then he would often realize they were Europeans fighting for the Sikhs who were the ones trying to surrender because the Sikh soldiers themselves would never surrender. That's right. Yes, I think it was more, you know, it's more. Uh, um, uh, I think they were used to fighting the Afghans, <laughs> uh, the Sikh soldiers, you know, so for, for their entire history, the last thing you want to do is being, you know, be taken prisoner by the Afghans. So, so this idea of being, you know, being taken prisoner was not not on the cards, and uh, you know, and it just became a a sort of uh, a thing that that you just don't do, you know. Uh, but yeah, there was a, there, there was a, a sort of fair scattering of Europeans, um, uh, primarily sort of Frenchmen and some 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 uh, sort of. Uh, um, English soldiers, you know, in, in the sea cranks as well. And um, they they uh, they weren't very well treated. Um, you know, any time they saw a British soldier, you know, in, in um, um, Sikh army uniform. They, um, that's right. Yeah. yeah. 
I think you said it right there. Um, no chance to surrender. You know, um, they they just saw them as traitors essentially. But yeah, it must have been a you know absolutely horrendous on the, on the riverbank there. And of course, the you know the other half of the Sikh army was still stationed on the the right bank. And uh, I think they must have been very frustrated that they're not being allowed to help. You know, there was there was a uh, uh, Sikh artillery on the on the right bank of the of the river, but they weren't allowed to fire. You know, there was there was literally no fire coming, you know, across the river, which would have helped, you know, the Sikh soldiers because the the, the British had bought their guns, but these were just light, you know, horse artillery guns to, 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 to the riverbank, not the heavy guns. So they could have very easily prevented, you know, the British from massacring these soldiers. But yeah, wow. unfortunately, and, the case. And, and so we've heard about Sikh casualties. Did the British also suffer heavy casualties or did they get let off very lightly? Okay, well, the British um, had about two and a half thousand casualties with uh, about 300 dead. So, you know, not too bad. It was an easy win at the end of the day. Um, you know, there's no, there's, no, there's no way around that one. But, um, you know, there was a, a quite substantial sort of artillery cannonade before artillery exchange before uh, the British advance. And um, so apparently that was quite quite um, successful, you know, uh, on both sides. So I'm guessing a lot of the casualties would have been taken at that point. And, and certainly the British had problems uh, to a certain extent, not on the Sikh right flank, but on the Sikh left flank. Um, at that point, I think it was at the um, HM 29th, I think, they actually literally had to attack the, the Sikh entrenchment about three times, three, four times before they managed to get in. So, but overall, yeah, it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> So the, the British have essentially slaughtered a big chunk of the Sikh army at this point. This is the last major engagement of the war. Is that right? And then what happened after the battle? Yes, that, this was the last, last battle. The Sikh army had effectively lost most of their artillery by now. You know, they had about 20, 30 guns on, 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 on their side, but that's it, really. Uh, it's a spent force. You know, they're not getting any ammunition or anything from, from Lahore. Um, Lahore itself is only about 20, 30 miles down the road, you know, once you cross the river. And uh, so the British, the day after the battle, had their bridge of boats ready at Ferozpur. Um, and um, they crossed the river. And within two, three days, they'd sort of marched to Lahore, effectively brought, you know, um, an end to the war, really. The conditions... I think it was uh, 50 million rupees had to be paid to the British, you know, as sort of, uh, um, By reparations. Sort of uh, as reparations. Uh, but it wasn't just that the, the British had the intention of splitting up the, the empire as well, sort of, you know, effectively weaken it. So the area from, you know, the Himalayas uh, up to the river Bias, uh, which is called the Duab, Duaba area, quite a... Um, fertile area, you know, uh, it's where the Indian Punjab is now, effectively. Uh, that area was basically annexed by the British. And uh, they also separated Kashmir as well, uh, the whole of Kashmir from, from the Punjab. So that left just the rump of the Punjab itself as uh, the Sikh Empire going into, you know, Second Anglo-Sikh War. Um, so yeah, quite a quite a radical change there, uh, quite a weakening. The British also insisted on the the Sikh army being reduced. I think it's to about thirty thousand men from that sort of uh, sort of peak of about seventy eighty thousand men. 
uh, and put and more if you count the irregulars. So so they weaken the force effectively, and um, the Sikh army for the next two three years, you know, effectively just became a a sort of border security force. Um, you know, after the British takeover, uh, most of them were sort of uh, stationed along the uh, you know the, uh, the the Afghanistan border to, to to make sure there's no sort of incursions by these tribes. But it it sort of ended it as a fighting force. And then this is this is probably beyond the scope of the the interviews more as much as much as anything for me really. Um, I noticed there's not a lot of Sikh sources. Did you find any? Uh, did you find any Sikh sources at all, like first-hand accounts of the battles and things? There, there are Sikh sources, Chris, um, but there, there's few. Um, and I and I suppose you know it's always going to be that way simply because, you know, a lot of the Sikh soldiers wouldn't have been great writers, shall we say, you know, they, 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 they were sort of plucked from the, you know, there were farmers, you know, or juts as we call them, you know, a lot of them were, uh, you know, sort of men of the soil, if you like. Um, so they wouldn't have written very much themselves, you know, historically, if you like. Um, there, there, there are a few letters and things. What we do have is the official Lahore sources, you know, the Lahore records, Unfortunately, these Lahore records are written in Persian because that was the, you know, the lingua franca of the time. Um, so it's very difficult for, you know, uh, the common man to sort of uh, decode these. Um, so, and uh, the other thing is they're, they're actually in Lahore now, which is in Pakistan. So it's very difficult for, you know, chaps like me to, to, to go there. You know, we're not locals um, and um, actually go through these resources. But if anyone does... Um, you know, there's a huge number of stories there, that, yeah. <laughs> documents and, you know, facts and figures that nobody's actually, um, you know, really accessed, I think, you know, in earnest. Um, so the huge number of stories there, including the uh, the chaps you were talking about, you know, European adventurers in, in Punjab and what they did and, you know, their stories as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, trying to learn Persian, I, I was about to say, it's kind of exciting but tragic to think there could be so much there that no one's really had a chance to go through and maybe maybe we'll have to pool our resources and hire a, a local Pakistani who speaks Persian to go and <laughs> take notes of all of them for us that's right yeah yeah I think it's I think that's the case with um, all Indian archives actually you know British archives obviously very easy to access and they're written in Indian uh, they're written in English uh, but you know, there's, there's there's archives in you know in uh, in Punjab, you know East Punjab, uh, you know in places like Patiala and stuff. Um, and there's archives, you know, for the Indian states, uh, you know Hyderabad and Mysore and w what have you everywhere. And they're not really they haven't really been accessed as well as they you know and. and you know, so there's a huge number of stories there, um, and and information and data which which hasn't really been accessed so you know british archives are, are really you know sort of well sort of you know uh, have been sort of mined quite heavily by you know british historians but you know the other side of the story hasn't so hopefully at some stage so you've visited most of these battlefields is that right and 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 what are they like to visit if if someone's listening now and they get a chance to go are they going to find the battlefields similar to how they would have been on the days of the fighting no, unfortunately, they've, they've changed quite a lot, um, Chris. Um, you know, the population of India being what it is, you know, you're getting all these villages are sort of, you know, 
exploding in size really aren't they you know the population growth and what have you um a lot of the jungles that we used to have you know in india are gone so all the jungled area around ferozshah mudki that's all gone now you know it's all cultivated sort of land now um the the only place that's almost what it was like you know in those days is sabrao and the reason for that is that it's it's very close to the river and um it's you know the soil there is is not sort of the type that you know you can grow things on simply because it floods you know you're very close to the river and it, it, it's that floodplain thing um so and that's probably the most atmospheric place battlefield that you can go to you know if you if you if you stand on the uh, the riverbank there you know you can just imagine this sort of final scene where um you know it's a sort of uh, destruction of the the sikh army there um but having said that when you, if you do go to punjab you know the british built the war monuments there mudki you know ferozshah sabrao aliwal you've got the british monuments still there so that gives you an idea you know of the battlefield uh, and 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 where things were but for that you know you really need to you know look at maybe the battlefield guide in my book or maybe somebody else comes up with something as well to get you know where where things happen so yeah. so all you've got is a is a monument there it doesn't really tell you what happened where you know some of these places are quite large aliwal you know the fighting took place uh, from one end to another it was probably about 5 6 miles you know from the battlefield itself right to the end of the the battle at the at the, the banks of the river that's right 5 6 miles so you know it's uh, the monuments help but you, you need to sort of decode further than that yeah okay well when i win the lottery i'll fly us both out we'll make a documentary there how does that sound yeah that sounds good yeah yeah it's uh, i think it's your forte you know i think uh, definitely you as the uh, as a frontman i think so. oh no i th- i think we'd have to be the pair of us i think we'd have to do it together <laughs> we'd be like we'd play off each other i think it'd be fun <laughs> we just yeah, need we just yeah. need to win the lottery and we'll we'll do it. <laughs> so if there are any rich philanthropists out there who would like to fund that documentary series, please reach out to me. Redcoathistory at gmail.com, all one word there. <laughs> Joking aside though, I do actually want to start thinking bigger with this podcast and YouTube channel. Next year, I'm considering a series on the First Anglo-Boer War, and then in 2023, I'd like to source funding to travel to the US and to make a documentary series, both for the podcast and for YouTube, on the Revolutionary Wars. Message me if you're a historian, reenactor, or battlefield guide who focuses on that era and might like to be involved. Anyway, let's focus on the present, and in next month's episode, I hope to be joined by Charles Esdale, the preeminent scholar of the Peninsula War, to talk all about Burgos and Wellington's worst scrape. Make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss it. Until then, I bid you adieu.